Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and man, this is such a great week for me releasing shows because not only did I have an absolutely fantastic time talking to Jerry Fielden, I've also got next week coming up another uh, interview with another member of Arapaxis, as well as my review of the album Water Dog with some commentary from members of the band. Very excited to release that next week. However, before we do that, if you haven't listened to my interview with Jerry, go back and do that. Or if you want to listen to this interview with David and go back and listen to the interview with Jerry after, both absolutely fantastic guys had a blast talking to both of them. Um, I have kind of an ongoing interview with David because we've had to schedule this a little bit in chunks. And uh, but boy, the conversation is just fantastic. The stories he's got, uh, the the just amazing. And uh, I can't wait until we get to catch up a little bit more. And hopefully I'll have uh, some more for you guys soon. But I would say that this is part one uh, of, uh, you know, at least a couple of interviews that I'll get in with David. You're going to have a blast listening to him. He is so energetic, so passionate about music, so talented, but he's got some great stories too. And we're going to get into all of that right now. Ladies and gentlemen, I have to say I'm pretty excited because this is uh, very much a bucket list item for me to be able to interview this very talented gentleman. Uh, he's had quite a career, and we're going to dig into all of it here. David Stone. David, how are you? Oh, I'm remarkably well, Scott. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful, beautiful day in Vancouver, Canada. I have never been to Vancouver. I've been to Montreal. I've been to Toronto, where you're from, but I have never been to Vancouver. I've heard it's just oh. gorgeous. It's uh, it's uh, it's our San Francisco, basically. Mm. It's right on the ocean. We got mountains surrounding us, and you can you can go skiing and swimming the same day. Uh, it's just it's incredible. I just love it here. It's uh, the air's great. The weather's you know it never gets too cold. And, uh, sure, oh, that's good. It's, it's, it just makes for a great lifestyle for someone who doesn't have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a good, but it just sounds like paradise. It sounds like it has all the components you could possibly want. Oh yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely a, a hobo's paradise. There's no doubt, you know. You know, I studied in the conservatory when I was five years old. Wow! It, if, it, if it wasn't if it wasn't perfect, it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? that's that's some hardcore learning right there. Well, yeah, I, the conservatory was, you know. It's, it, you either got it one hundred percent right, or it was wrong. Yeah. It was no, it was no like, hey, that's pretty good. It was none of that. Right? Do you do you find that you still hold yourself to that standard, or have you been able to to loosen oh, up a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, my my father was a phenomenal musician, uh, unbelievable, literally unbelievable musician. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've always, uh, even when I was five, six years old, I was listening to classical and jazz. And you know the uh, the the technical ability of those musicians. You know, very very rarely in in rock and roll did I ever find anybody who was up to the level of musician that I was used to when I was six or seven years old. Isn't that crazy? Well, well I thought it was kind of weird. You know, <laughs> you know, like uh, like the average musician in 1950 was a way better musician than the average musician from 1980. Mm-hmm. Is that because most of them didn't really get trained properly? Well, not trained at all. I mean, 
you know, as soon as rock and roll hit, I mean, you got all these guys, who, you know, they can play three chords and that's about it. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or some basic blues and three chords and that's it. Right. Whereas, you know, uh, the average musician in 1940 could read music. Great. Sure. It became a, what, let's start a band, not let's learn how to be good instrumentalists. Let's learn how to play, period. You know, I mean, I know I don't mean to be weird here, but, sure. you know, by the, by the time I was 13, I was studying for, for, uh, for grade 10, which is, that's as far as you can go. And then you get what's called an ASCT. And then you're done with the conservatory. You're either a concert pianist or you, you got a, a, a degree, a certificate so that you could teach. And, you know, and, and there I am, 15 years old, and I'm in my first band. You know, like, nobody in the band can read music, wow. <laughs> you know? Right. So, uh, so I, I, learned, I learned very quickly how to deal with people, like guitar players and bass players, who couldn't read music. So uh, I, ended, I ended up learning how to play guitar just so I could show other guitar players, you know, like parts in the song that they wouldn't understand. Oh, that's a good idea. Was keys your first instrument? Uh, uh, yeah, piano. I was a piano. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, I went to the... I really went basically through the whole thing. I uh, I dropped out just before I, my ARCT. Mm-hmm. But uh, by then, I could I could play whatever I wanted with, with both hands. Sure. Like, no, I just want to play. You could be in school forever, and at some point you have to say, okay, it's it's time to take what I've learned and go start living this. Well, that was the great part about it, which my parents, like my parents, when I, in the early 1950s or middle 1950s, they were progressive. You know, they were, uh, you know, they were post-Second World War liberal. You know, they did believe the kids should go to, you know, take dance lessons or music lessons or, you know, acting lessons or... You know, they were just those kind of parents. So uh, um, I was in the, I went, they got me in the conservatory by, when I was five years old. And uh, the guy who taught me, uh, they got, they just really lucked out when, when they uh, put me in the conservatory. I got this uh, great piano teacher who also taught ballet and uh, I was a composer. He wrote, um, he wrote all the music for Babar the Elephant, the original uh, full-length uh, kids thing. I don't know if you heard of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my piano teacher wrote all the music. Wow. And he also wrote the, the theme for, I don't remember, the Canadian uh, children's show, Mr. Dress Up. I've heard the name, but I don't think I've seen it. Yeah, it had this really uh, complicated little piano uh, song, piano music for the theme music for the show. And he wrote that as well. And uh, so, by luck, I got this great, great musician who was a really nice guy. And, uh, and I just flourished in classical music. I, uh, I would always get first class honors. And, uh, and uh, at the end of the year, they would put on a recital. And so they would take the best kids from each level and, and they would perform one, one piece. So I, I did about three or four different recitals uh, for the conservatory. And my parents were just thrilled, you know, like a convocation hall, 
you know, I, I would have to wear a black, you know, suit and, <laughs> my parents would be all dressed up and uh, and I go walk onto a huge stage at the University of Toronto went, sit down on a grand piano my feet wouldn't even touch the ground wow. and I would play and I would play because I was considered the like the best musician the best student at, on the grade 4 level or the grade 5 level grade 6 grade 7 I think I did 3 or 4 of them and I still have all my uh I called all my certificates. Wow. Um, but yeah, by the time I was 15, I, you could, if you played me a, a piece of music, like any Beatles song or anything by Beach Boys or anything like that, and, you, and if you asked me how it went, I would play it for you. Wow. Because I could do that by then. And, uh, and, uh, it, it, and by the time I was 15, I'd like, not only could I play it for you, I could play, I could ask you, what key would you like me to play it in? And I could play it in whatever key you wanted. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how good the training was uh, with the conservatory. Well, most people didn't like the conservatory. Like, they'd go for a few years and then they'd quit because it was just too hard. Yeah. But I had a great teacher, and I was obviously a natural musician. So I just, I just flew through the conservatory. It takes the right mindset to be able to sustain a tough environment, but I think having the support of, of your teacher and your parents. Yeah, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't find it tough at all. I thought it was easy. And um, and my and my piano teacher, he just jumped grades. I, I just, when I, when I went to the conservatory, I went to grade two, four, six, eight, ten. I didn't do three, five, seven, and nine because he, he figured Oh, don't bother. You don't need to. So wow. I just jumped in like that. That says a lot. Yeah, but but it, like I said, by the time I was 16 years old, I could play anything you wanted me to play, basically, in music. Back then, music was like, you know, like rock and roll bands. There was never never any charts. There was never any notation. So uh, so it's like everyone had to use their ear or they would write it. A, a, a fake charts, you know, you just have a chord symbol and you use a slash for a bar. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of a book called The Real Book. No. But it's, uh, uh, it's a book for all jazz musicians and it's, it's, a, it's a play on words because originally in the 1940s and 50s, you know, a, a piano player would have to work with a lot of different singers but they, a lot of them, they would sing the same songs and back then they would Refer to them as standards, you know, like uh, since I fell for you, Autumn Leaves, God Bless the Child, you know, don't get around much anymore. I mean, these are all standards, you know, Billy Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, Frank Sinatra, you know, Tony Bennett. Back then, you would carry around a big binder of handwritten charts, and you would only write the lead lines down, and then you would write chord symbols. And he would do flash marks with the bars, and they were called fake books. And everybody would have them in, in the 1940s and 50s. And just in order to work with um, with uh, different singers, but they would, you know, like they would always want to sing the same songs. So everybody had fake books. So finally, somebody got the idea of printing one, even though it's illegal because the, uh, in order to print music, they, you got paid for publishing. So the books were illegal. Because the publishing didn't get paid to the writers of the songs when somebody would write these fake books out. So now all the kids who go to college, music colleges, 
they buy this book called The Real Book, and it's just a printed fake book from the 1950s that has all the standards in it. And, uh, and uh, that's what uh, people use now. Right. I, I had wondered if that was the play on words, because I worked in a, a musical instrument store, and we sold a lot of uh, fake books. And as soon as you said you the go. real book, that was the first thing that popped into my head. Yeah, yeah. The, the most common one is called the real book, and it's in parentheses, you know, referring to the fact that it's, it's just a very good fake book. It is sort of the fake book now. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, by the time I realized that I wanted to be a musician, which was very early on, like 12 or 13 years old, I realized um, there's no money in it, and, and, and I would have to sort of jump ship a lot like if somebody wanted me and they would have to pay me and i would you know write big charts show other musicians in the in the group how music went you know and uh and ended up um working with like as a teenager working with agents because they're like oh man i could use you in this group or i need you to work with these guys and clean up their uh their arrangements and Stuff like that. Right. So I, I ended up like doing quite well as a musician, as a teenager. Did you do a lot of sessions as, as well? Well, that came later. But, uh, you know, back then, all the work was in bars, uh, six nights a week playing in bars. And I'm talking about the 19, 1960s. Um, in fact, uh, where I grew up in Toronto, there was a law saying that if you uh, if you owned a bar and it had strippers in it, you know, that uh, they would have to, they had to dance to live music. They couldn't dance to a record. Wow. Or a recording. So this is back in the 1960s. So I'm hearing I'm 17 years old and I'm getting work uh, at, uh, in a strip club <laughs> at 17. <laughs> wow. Talk about living the dream. Well, yeah, no kidding, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, so here I am at strip clubs in Toronto. I, I think they're all gone now. But in the late 60s, you know, Toronto was a big city. So there was there was a, a good two dozen strip clubs. And a lot of them, if you're going to find this hilarious, they would have a Hammond organ, a big Hammond organ in them. And uh, and that, in, I don't know if you know about Hammond organs, but they come with a... They come with a big, tall speaker cabinet called the Leslie, mm -hmm. and it's got our speakers that spin inside. I've moved a few of those before. They're quite heavy. Okay, so, all right, so there you go. Uh, almost all the, the major strip clubs in Toronto in the late 60s had a Hammond organ in them with two Leslie's, you know, hanging up on shelves on the wall. Wow. And, uh, and, they, and the band would always be a, an organ trio, which would be organ, guitar, and drums. No bass. The guy playing Hammond had to play bass on the Hammond, either with bass pedals or with the lower manual. And so I got really good at that as a teenager, playing bass on the Hammond. As I'm playing in a in a little two-piece jazz combo, backing up strippers. And uh, 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 there's a famous guitar player. I don't know if you've heard of John Scofield. I have heard the name. Yeah, his last couple of albums use the same format. You know, here we are 50 years later, his last two records are organ trio records, like uh, Hammond, Guitar, and Jumps. Wow. Same with uh, Jimmy Reed. Jimmy Reed's, uh, sorry, not Jimmy, Jimmy Smith. 
all his stuff was a trio. It was him and Wes Montgomery, and the drummer was Grady Tate. Is it just me, or is, was a, a Hammond organ kind of an odd choice at that time for a strip club to have, because it was really a blues organ back then? Well, they just, we played all blues music. Mm-hmm. That's oh, what really? they danced to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't dance to, like, we weren't, we weren't playing, like, the latest pop records. We were playing R- mostly R&B. You know, like Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, mm-hmm. you know, Otis Redding, you know, uh, R&B. Because wow. that was dance, that was dance music in the in the sixties, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. Wow. This you is uh, this is really some eye opening stuff here. I got to tell you. Well, it was yeah, quite a quite a um, uh, quite an introduction to uh, the, you know to music as a seventeen year old. I got to tell you that. Um, okay, I got my coffee. As oh, I'm good. Talking, you know, that went great. Such a vital component for me. I didn't kill anybody. <laughs> All right. Where are you, Scott? You in Montreal? Uh, no, I'm in Las Vegas. Oh, wow. Cool. I've been to Vegas. Oh, it's such a crazy town. I lost my shirt in Vegas, man. I crawled out of there with like 200 bucks. I yeah. was, uh, I was, uh, I spent four years in Mexico playing uh, piano at the uh, Westin, the Westin Hotel in Cabo San Lucas, the Western Regina. Mm-hmm. I had a contract there. You know, playing, they had this big, huge lounge with a grand piano, and I played there five nights a week for two years. Um, and uh, in the summer, uh, the second summer, I, 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 I took off. I worked the full year through the whole summer in Mexico, first time, uh, the first season, and, you know, it was insane how hot it was. So this, the next summer, I just got out for a couple of months, and I, I was uh, playing around. Colorado and the Southwestern United States with a guy named Brian Flynn, who's now in the Music Hall of Fame in Mexico. Oh, nice. And uh, we would gig around uh, all over California, Colorado, and Vegas. And uh, and yeah, uh, Vegas was the last, we had a, a week in Vegas. And then I had to go back down to uh, Cabo San Lucas, which from Vegas is about a, I don't know, a 1,500 mile drive. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I and I barely made it. I had to borrow twenty bucks in this town about a hundred miles north of Calvin Lucas from the tourists, so I can get back to to work. Yeah, I got cleaned out in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. that that does tend to happen quite a bit here. Yeah, well, for about fifteen hundred bucks in a, in about a period of four or five days. <laughs> well, since some people are doing that in four or five minutes. Oh, I bet. I no doubt. Even the very first album I ever did, I was only 21 years old. I was um, it was with A and M Records in 1975, and uh, the band had a really weird name. It was called Symphonic Slam. S L A M. Symphonic Slam. I never liked the name of the band, but it, it was signed to A and M Records, and George Sinti produced that. In '75, and that was very technical. Like uh, uh, there was no bass guitar in the album; it was all done with synthesizers. Oh, and uh, and I was using and I was using all the latest stuff that you can get your hands on in 1975, and uh, and 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 multi-layering synthesizer tracks to build up polyphonic synthesizer uh, parts. 
you know, because polyphonic synthesizers hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, like every synthesizer you get your hands on it would only play one note at a time. Right, yeah. So, so uh, I would end up mostly using ARP and MOG and, uh, and building tracks up, which was a very slow process, but you would get that big sound at the, at the end. And uh, I mean, obviously, Rainbow was a huge part of your career, but it, it seems like the album Long Live Rock and Roll was made very under very bizarre circumstances because you've got Tony Carey, who was fired but was hired back to do some of the sessions. Then you were brought in to play on some of the songs. Bob Daisley played on some. We were basically working for Richie Blackmore Incorporated. And, uh, and uh, so I just, you know, I was really tough. I got when I got signed to the band, I was twenty three. Wow. No, twenty three or twenty four. So I was the youngest guy by about nine or ten years before the next oldest guy. So I was the baby. Well, if I have it right, uh, and and please tell me if this is wrong, but I have it that you played on L.A. Connection, The Shed, yep. Kill the King, and yep. and uh, and you co-wrote Gates of Babylon. Oh man, I, I I pretty well yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very I was very upset by that. The manager uh, Bruce Payne, the pretense talent, who also handles uh, Deep Purple and some other acts like White Snake and that, he just turned around and said to me, "Well, that was great work in the studio, but we're not going to give you any publishing. What? We're just going to we're just going to steal it from you, but we'll give you money instead." And they gave me all the mechanical points for the whole album, which was cool. Oh, that's so crazy. I still to this day but I didn't get I didn't get the songwriting credit but you know that happens a lot you know yeah it's it's a shame though because it's it's just not right to not credit people for the work that they did oh yeah like a great example is uh, Katie Lang I don't know if you know Katie Lang oh yeah she's a beautiful singer yeah she, well she's alright she had a <laughs> she, her, biggest, her biggest hit was a song called Constant Craving mm-hmm, I love that song well a friend of mine wrote that song. His name is Gordy Matthews. Oh. And he's he's just an incredibly, incredibly talented guy with a huge voice. He's, he's like one, a guy who should have been in, in the Eagle. He's one of those kind of guys. Okay. Their management said, if you don't give us, I think it was 35% of the publishing, we will not record the song. Even though he wrote the song. Not only did he write the whole song, but the harmonies is, is his arrangement. The guitar playing is him. I mean, it's it's basically a Gordy Matthews record with Katie Lang singing, wow. but he had to give up. He had to give up a third of the publishing. That's crazy. I remember hearing uh, an interview with Roger Glover from Deep Purple, where he was talking about early on when he had joined the band, he had done some work on a song for a friend of his, and he really didn't think much of it. And Deep Purple's management found out and said, uh, "No, we own everything that you do." Well, yeah, it depends on what kind of paper you sign, you know? Like, when I signed my first contract, it was with A&M Records. And I had just turned 22. And um, they gave me a $6,000 signing bonus, which was very nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 22-year-old, 22-year-old kid in 1975, I got a, I got $6,000 in my hand. Uh, I didn't, I didn't which I did not have to pay back. It was against future earnings. Uh-huh. But, but they also tied up five years of my publishing. Mm-hmm. So if I wrote things, 
they would get 50% of it. And, um, and that was just the way uh, life went back then. I mean, I, I, the music business is not a very nice business. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot better now because of, it's basically because of attrition. The red, the big record companies don't have a lot of money anymore. They don't get these budgets like, you know, like, uh, Fleetwood Mac spending a million dollars to record rumors. Like, that doesn't happen anymore, you know? Yeah. You know? So, uh, so things are maybe a little more on the up and up. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's always been a ruthless business full of crooks. Well, the one song that I haven't been able to identify a keyboard player on is Sensitive Delight. Was that one you played on? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. You know, I mean, we were in a castle north of Paris. Mm -hmm. I'm 24 years old. I've been on the road for almost, you know, three and a half months I've been on the road. And before that, it was a month of rehearsals, uh, you know, a week of auditioning, two weeks of rehearsal in L.A., and then a week rehearsals in England at Shepperton, and then uh, and then a touring uh, Europe for two months, touring England for a month, and then straight to the studio. So I I didn't see a single person I knew, or I, even a single Canadian for like over six, seven months. And they're stuck in a castle an hour and a half north of Paris with fucking nothing to do, like so boring. And everybody would just, because they're so bored, senseless, because Richie's just being alone in the uh, studio with the engineer. Yeah, Richie played Richie played all the bass guitar on the whole album. Now, that's one thing that's true. Like, Bob Daisley thinks he might be on a track or two, or, or the other bass player, Jimmy Bain. But no, Richie played all the bass on that whole album. Oh, wow. And... Um, they would play me tracks, uh, him and Martin Birch. And I go in, I go in, it was my turn to go in the studio. There's uh, Martin Birch, the producer, sitting there with Blackmore. They would play me tracks that, that Tony did that they didn't like. And they'd say, well, what would you do here? And I would show them stuff and they'd go, oh, okay, we like that. And then, then I would end up put, replacing tracks. And then Blackmore and I uh, started with uh, the basic... Uh, bones, uh, the, the groove, actually, I guess you could say, for Gates of Babylon. Mm -hmm. Now, that we did that, recorded that. Uh, the, the whole track was recorded, just the drums and me playing uh, like a, a ghost bass track on a synth, on a Moog synthesizer. Uh, and then and then I would do like, like you hear on a on a R&B or a funk record, like with Stevie Wonder, you'd hear clavinet and the old bass sort of weaving. And you can hear that in Gates of Babylon. So it was uh, Cozy Powell and I, the drummer, we recorded the whole bed track. Like we played the whole thing, just the two of us. Mm -hmm. And then and then, uh, and then, I would build the tracks up with, you know, uh, organ. And uh, I had a keyboard that sounded like a choir called an orchestra. Me and Patrick Moraz were sponsored by them. And so you'd hear this choir, you hear these strings. I, I actually ended up arranging some string parts for members of the Munich Symphony. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and all, like I said, the bass was, was 
originally done with a Moog synthesizer, and then he just doubled it up with a bass guitar and the, uh, and the rock parts. So are the strings that we hear in the in the actual studio recording, is that you playing, or did they overdub that with an actual string I, I The parts I wrote, and I played on the orchestra, that they brought in uh, uh, two violins, a viola, and a cello, a basic string section that they could double up, and they just... They just played the parts that I recorded, so they would sound more realistic. Wow, I, it's such a brilliant song. I mean, it's a big sounding record. It, you know, if you listen to it carefully, that's a big sounding record. Oh, absolutely! You know? it's it's huge. Because yeah. I was listening to bands at the time, like Genesis or Yes or Channel Giant. You know, that were or- orchestral bands. You know, right? They really knew how to fill out the sound in a, in a piece of music. So the other question I had was that Kill the King was performed live in a very huge way before the album. It was the first song on every concert I ever played with them. It was the first song we would play. How did you guys dial it back for the, from the live version to the album version? And no, it was the other way around. Oh. The album version was first, and then live, it was like, we can't play at that this tempo. It sucks. So we sped <laughs> it up incredibly live. It was wow. a completely different song by the time we played it live. It had nothing to do with the original. Right, that's what I thought too. That happens a lot in rock and roll. You know, you're in the studio, you come up with this clever bit for a song. You go to play it on stage and it's just too lame. Like it's just, it's got, it doesn't have enough life to it. So you end up speeding tracks up. Um, uh, it was really famous the uh, first time I saw it was when I don't know if you know the record stacks both the label that it had all the old, it had all the original R&B people on it like Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett. Mm-hmm. Well, when they toured England in 1965 or six, uh, it was the first time anybody who played R&B music ever played in, in England. And you listen to uh, Otis Redding. Uh, Otis Redding did a version of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. uh, that actually got. Airplane in the United States in 1965 or six. Wow. The live version is twice the speed. And even like, you know, like Midnight Hour or, you know, all the old army tunes like Knock on Wood and that. Um, the live versions are just like 30, 40% faster just to keep them, just to inject energy into them. You know, same with Sam Phillips or Jackie Wilson. They get on stage and their tunes would be like, like just pumped up. You know, just for the sake of making them more, uh, you know, more alive, more, have more, more energy, just more energetic. I think that's what he, he figured that people expected from him was mm-hmm. this guy who was over the top, you know? Yeah. Well, he certainly has that reputation. Well, he would smash the guitar every show. Right. He would get a, you know, he would get a, a case of 20 uh, uh, fenders made in Japan uh, back then. <laughs> They're worth a lot of money now, but back then he would get them for like 250 bucks a guitar. You get a case of, you know, 20 strats. And every night at the last song, he would, he would, uh, he would switch guitars to one of those guitars and just destroy it. You know, like smash it into pieces, throw it in the audience. And they went nuts every time, I bet. Oh, yeah. He'd jump on it, you know. It's a nice thing about being uh, a studied piano player is that I could go and just work by myself, like just play piano. And uh, I, one time I worked, I worked the cruise ships, you know? I played 
good on play grand piano like seven days a week on on cruise ships. Uh, that was cool. I went down to Mexico, and I got a contract, and I played two years at the Westin Hotel in Cabo San Lucas, the Westin Regina, and on a grand piano five nights a week. And I just I just played jazz and blues, and and uh, and uh, the guys from uh, KLON, the jazz station in Long Beach. Uh, uh, the jazz station there. They uh, they do transcriptions, recordings, and they try to register every jazz musician in the world. They actually came down and recorded me uh, uh, in in Mexico, and uh, and I'm now registered at KLON as a jazz musician. <laughs> wow! Did did you ever really think of yourself as a jazz musician? Well, my father was, you know. And I grew up listening to jazz uh, ever since I was like three years old. I remember pieces of jazz music from when I was three or four years old, actually. Uh, and and the and the musicians playing it. Uh, I uh, I wish I had some of those records now. I I sorely miss them. Oh, but yeah, uh, yeah my my father was a to die for musician, and uh, and I and. I grew up around great musicians. Like ever since I was like, like I said, four or five years old, when I studied at the conservatory. Well, I remember you telling me when when you were working with Rainbow that when you were doing the album, it was really difficult because there was so much downtime and you weren't really near anything. I would just sit there for days on end doing nothing. Right. So what uh, happens you know, when you're when you're on a cruise ship? Or you're doing, you know, you're doing a, a couple of weeks. Well, when you're doing a couple of weeks in Vegas, you're in Vegas, so you've got a lot of stuff you can do. But when you're down in Mexico, how do you fill the time that's not the two hours a day that you're playing? Well, Mexico, I mean, you know, I, I, I when I had when I was playing with the Western in Mexico, I played five nights a week, so basically it would tie up about six hours a day. You know, got to get there. You know. And, you know, I'd always be in a black jacket and, and I, you know, I'd, I'd want a half an hour warm up and, and, uh, and, it, and it would take me about half an hour either way to get there. But, um, I mean, Mexico where I was, it was like, it was, it was a tourist haven. Oh. So like there's great snorkeling, there's great restaurants, there's great beaches. I, I did not suffer in Mexico at all. Good. <laughs> What about when you were on tour with Rainbow? Was that was that a challenge, just going from city to city? Because you've got to fill what twenty one hours a day. Well, you know what? That's a great that's a great question you ask. You know, because I, you know, when I when I joined Rainbow, it was like, okay, welcome to the big time, kid. You know, um, we rehearsed at uh, the Columbia lot for I don't know almost a month, and like. Jackson Brown was rehearsing Running on Empty Next Door. You know, uh, 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 Toto was rehearsing their first album next door. Stevie Wonder came in and rehearsed Songs in the Key of Life, uh, two doors down. Jeez. Like the Columbia Lot, uh, that's where all uh, the biggest, um, the biggest uh, bands would rehearse there because it was the old film lots from the 1930s and 40s. So you could set up a, a whole stage, like a whole concert stage. And that's how all these bands would rehearse. We would rehearse on a, a portable stage that was the same size as the stages we were going to play. We would have the entire monitor system 
of what we were going to use when we tour. And, and you know, uh, Richie Blackmore wasn't the only guy to do this. Uh, they were all doing it, all, all the acts. We were doing all the same thing, you know, rehearsing as if – and rehearsing as if they're on the on a full size stage because mm-hmm. they basically were. Uh, like it would take me. Like I'd walk into the building and my keyboard was over 150 yards away inside the building. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like I could, I couldn't throw a baseball that far and hit my keyboard. I'd have to walk that far to, to where my keyboard was. Jeez. That's how we we rehearsed. Uh, but yeah, we get on the road and and. I had never traveled like to France or Germany or England or Japan. I, I'd never done that before. So I'm like, well, what, don't you guys go to sound check? And they're like, oh, no, we don't sound check. I'm like, what? You let the roadie sound check? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, no, not me, man. <laughs> like, I got, I, as soon as we check in the hotel, I jumped back in the limo and said, take me to the gig right now. And, uh, and I'd be one of the only, band members who would ever go down and sound check my equipment at like five in the afternoon or four mm-hmm. in the afternoon. And the roadies loved it. They were so fucking happy that one guy would show up from the band. They would all stop and come around, give me a hug and say, and they all called me Stony. That was my nickname. Hey, Stony. And, and they were just so fucking thrilled that I would show up, just show up that, that they would do anything for me. Like any of the roadies would kill for me carry drugs for me, anything I want, you name it, they would have done it. Only because I took the time to show up, in, and not every time, like maybe four times out of five, mm-hmm. but show up at the gig in the afternoon and sound check my gear. And uh, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get over how amazing that was. And, and they had, it, you know, I, had, I still have friends for life that I talked to from back in those days. And and it's because I took the time to go down, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew that, you know, I don't know how many times am I going to go to Paris? How many times am I going to go to Nuremberg? How many times am I going to go to uh, Den Haag, you know, in my life? So I made a point at every chance I could. It was like as soon as I checked in the hotel, get out of the hotel and go walk, go walk these great cities, and like. You know, a typical uh, concert tour, you're doing three to four shows a week. So you got a day off or two days off in certain towns. And I would immediately spend the whole day, you know, touring, you know, the cities of Europe or uh, in Japan. I did the same thing, you know. And, like, literally, I was the only guy in the band who would do that. Wow. And I remember I was in Osaka. And I hope I'm not talking to your off here, by the way. No, it's great. I love it. Oh, okay, great. I'm in Osaka, and it's the head of the Yamaha Music Corporation is in Osaka, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they have their own dedicated building. It's six stories, and each story is quite big. It's like maybe the height, each floor is the size of four high school gymnasiums, each floor. So the top floor is all their pianos. And uh, I had this, like they told me when I landed in Japan, she, uh, they gave me this badge, this plastic badge you put on your jacket, and it would say, I am an Udo artist, U-D-O. And he was the big, big promoter in Japan. Like he brought in McCartney, he brought in Bob Dylan, and he, and he you know, promoted us. So I had this Udo artist uh, tag on my jacket. The guy 
uh, when I get to the sixth floor in the elevator of the like uh, of the Amazon building, sees this badge and starts bowing profusely, like as if I'm a fucking god, and and leads me to their the to this piano they got on a race sort of little stage, and it's the best Yamaha, best piano Yamaha built. It was like $40,000 at the time. Jeez. He said, no, you play, you play this piano. So I'm like, fine. I, I sat there and I played this insanely great piano for about an hour, and the guy was so polite that he hid in the back so I wouldn't see him, so I that he wouldn't bother me. Wow. Like, that's how crazy. That's how crazy it was. And, um, and yeah, and in Japan, I, I would literally be the only guy in the back who would leave the hotel. It was, it was just crazy. Uh, and how, uh, British, especially the British guys that, that said, the kind of set in the ways, you know? Well, would you, would you say that you really didn't develop relationships with the people in the band? You kind of just, because they wouldn't go with you? Well, I did. I said, of course, of course I did, you know? I was the youngest guy in the band by a long shot. Like I was just turned 24 and these guys are in their thirties uh, or Ronnie was almost 40. I, uh, uh, Ronnie, uh, his, uh, girlfriend was, uh, John Lord's ex right. and her name was Wendy. And, uh, they felt a real, like they, they kind of adopted me like a little nephew, you know, like, Hey, wherever wherever the band went, Wendy and Ronnie were like, you, you should come with us. Uh-huh. So, like, there'd be two or three limos or cars or whatever, and I would just, wherever we had to go, if it was in a car, and I would just jump in with them because they were just, uh, they felt paternal towards me, which was really great, you know? Yeah, every everything that I've heard in an, either an interview from Ronnie or stories about Ronnie um, has just shown what a great and considerate person that he was. Oh, oh, yeah. You know what? After a show, Ronnie would be like, hey, Stoney, come with me. And we would go back, like, uh, behind the backstage door, and there'd be, like, 150 people there. And and and, and I, it, it, like, the first time he, he, he made me do this, I, like, I didn't know what he had in mind. And then we get out there and there's 200 kids and all they wanted to do is shake hands and, and just talk to us. That's all they wanted. And it fucking meant the world to them. It meant the world to them. They were so happy they'd be in tears that they had a chance to just to talk. You know, I had so many musicians and like Blackmore would always make me do a couple of solos every night. Like they would actually leave the stage and I would have to play by myself. And, and I had so many keyboard players going, Oh fuck, that was incredible, man. Like when you switched over to the mini moves and you did this and you know, like guys would ask technical questions and, and Ronnie looked at me and winked and said, Isn't this cool? I'm like, This is fucking great, man. This is <laughs> this is totally what it's all about. Yeah. So we would we would spend an hour, we would have our own car and um and Ronnie was like, No, every show, Dave, we're going out there behind that backstage door and we're gonna go out there for half an hour, forty five minutes. And, 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 and I totally understood. I totally understood. Like, this is the right thing to do. These kids live for this. They live for it. So, uh, and, and I'm sure Ronnie kept that up for his whole career. I, I would put money on it. I wouldn't doubt that at all. That, that he, every show that he did that. 
That's that's really though. That's the thing because when fans fans have this weird thing with musicians that they feel like they have some ownership over bands that they like. Well, they do. I mean, they they pay so bloody much to see you, you know, and they buy your albums. Yeah, you know, you're you're public domain. You know, you you owe them. I I feel you owe them. You know. But to be able to meet those people and shake their hand and say thank you, that I mean, that's such a huge thing because most people don't ever get access to guys like you. Well, the thing is, it, 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 I, can't, I can't begin to explain to you, son, how happy they were that we would show up. Like a lot of bands, I guess they don't show up at all, you know, at the backstage after the show. Mm-hmm. But I can't, I can't describe to you the look of joy, you know, of, 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 on guys. It was mostly guys, you know. That kind of music appealed to men more than women. Right. But, uh, uh, but it meant the world. It's, you could tell it meant the world to them. It was like they shake your hand, they wouldn't let it go. They're like, "Oh man, you are so great! You are so great!" You know, like, you know, like, and they mean it. You can tell they mean it. Absolutely. It's not lip service, you know, and. Uh, and Ronnie would laugh and look at me and go, see, see, it doesn't take much, does it? And I'm like, no, it doesn't take anything. Yeah. This, this is not work, you know? Yeah. This isn't putting me, this isn't putting me out. This is not a problem, you know? So Ronnie and I, uh, you know, always, always saw eye to eye pretty well on everything. And uh, from the, you know, and, and when he left the band, when he left the band, I was out of the band with them, you know, a month later mm-hmm. or a month and a half later. Like, I knew leaving Rainbow was a, a career killer. I knew that. Was that your choice? Well, yeah, okay. uh, it was. But but I knew, I like, I didn't do it right away because mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be a career killer. I'm Canadian. For me to get back in the States or England, if I quit Rainbow, it's going to be really tough if... if if at all, oh, if it ever, yeah. you know, if I ever get picked up, I mean, it would cost him probably five thousand dollars a year in just in legal fees to keep me working as a Canadian uh, overseas. You know, wow. Ronnie, his one of his dreams was to own a Lincoln Town Car. He always dreamed of it as a little kid. When I grew up and I have enough money, I'm going to buy a Lincoln Town Car. So when he finally left. Rainbow and went to go to California to go play with Black uh, Black Sabbath, with, and he left with Wendy. He left with five thousand dollars in his pocket and the Lincoln, and that's it. Wow! But I tell you what, Scott. Within a year, I was asked to join one of the greatest Canadian bands ever, and they were called Max Webster. I was going to ask you about them, and they had a guitar player who became famous as a solo guy after named Kim Mitchell. Uh, now, we did a show that's on YouTube. Uh, in Canada, it was the first, what was called a national simulcast. You could turn on your TV to, uh, 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 like, like in the United States, you have ABC and NBC and CBS. Canada, we have CBC and CTV. You would turn on your affiliate channel in whatever city you were in. You would turn into your local FM rock station and watch uh, a a live concert with great sound over your FM stereo in real time. 
That's cool. So they call that a simulcast. Mm -hmm. We did the first one ever, ever, I think. Well, the Beatles did one in 1966. They were all in different cities all over the world. They did it with a teletype machine. But we, we did the first one in Canada, and now that's on YouTube. And uh, it's Max Webster Live at the Barry, Barry Theater. It's B-A-R-R-I-E. Now, when I, like on that show, I, I played pretty damn good. And all my Canadian keyboard playing buddies were just blown away. That band was way more progressive, way more interesting, much more fiber musically. So if you ever want to see what I what I got up to after Rainbow, see if you can find that. I'm I'm gonna hunt that down. Yeah, Max Webster, M A X W E B S T E R, Max Webster, and it's live from the Barry Theater, B A R R I E. I'm going to hunt that down and I'll put that in the show notes for everybody to check out. Oh, it'll blow, it'll blow your mind. It, like I played 10 times better uh, uh, with them than I ever did with Randy. Do you play better when you're more challenged? Well, of course. I mean, come on, man. You know, it's like, how many, how many times can you play three chords? Like, I'm sorry. You know, like, you know, I grew up listening to jazz and classical, man. You know, mm-hmm. that's true. And, I, I'm not used to hearing a guy do, play 96 tears for half an hour or bully bully. <laughs> like, like, come on, man. Sorry. When I heard Yes do Close to the Edge for the first time, I'm like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. There we go. Now we're talking. For me, you it know? was uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer playing Tarkus. There you go. Brilliant. Yeah. Insane. And it's in 5-4, you know? 5 <laughs> 4 like, yeah. wow, what fucking rock band plays in 5-4? The sounds that they were coming up with were just amazing. Well, he was the first guy, very first guy for you to hear commercially uh, uh, synthesizer. That's right. Uh, lucky Man. Lucky Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was before the invention of the mini It was, You used the original Model Model 10, Robert Moog Model 10. They were meant for universities. They weren't meant for musicians. They were cement for uh, electronic music studies in universities. It was a laboratory instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, th- and then there was an album called Switched on Bach. Yes, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. And it was the very first time anybody ever heard a synthesizer. Switched on Bach. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the n- next time anybody heard a synthesizer was the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations. You know, that thing that goes, that's a theremin. So, you know. Is it really? Yeah, that's a theremin. Huh. Oh, they were, the Beach Boys were very progressive. A lot of people don't realize how how progressive they were. Yeah. You know, they were really pushing the envelope all over all the place. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Keith Emerson, obviously, uh, was one of my fucking idols, you know. I, I learned the Tarkus riff. You know, and it's enforced, so you have to do it with two hands. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I played it for Blackmore. I oh, said, wow. I said, he, when I was auditioning, I said, he said, play something. I said, well, have you heard that last album by Emerson and Palmer? And I, and I did Tarkus. So I went, and Cozy started playing along with me on drums on, in 5-4. And the irony of that is he would go on to play with Emerson, Lake, and Palmer a few years later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Cozy and I got along great. Cozy and I got along great. Actually, within about a week, less than two weeks of ever meeting him and knowing the guy, the guy, he, he always loved hot rods and motorcycles. So I, I don't know if you know that. He, oh, yeah. he had a Ferrari. Um, so we're, we're in L.A. And I'm, I'm basically auditioning, although, I, did I tell you that story? I was in the band and I didn't know it. No, you didn't. Did, didn't tell you that one? <laughs> well, it's within a, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in the band and I don't know it. Okay, so I auditioned. At the Columbia lot in Hollywood, they take me back to my hotel in Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Marquis. I, I, the next morning, I bump into Todd Rudgren in the hallway. I'm just, I'm just, my mind is being blown by being in L.A. for the first time, you know. And 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 you know, I tell people, oh, I'm uh, I'm working with Richie Blackmore, and everybody's like, oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep going, and I think I'm still auditioning. And one night after the rehearsal, Colin's driving me back to the hotel. And and he said, well, we're going to fly you back to Canada for about a week, and then you're, we're off to England. And I'm like, what, am I in the band? And he looks at me and goes, oh, didn't you know? You're in the band, by the way. <laughs> and I'm, wow. tw- I'm 24 years old from Canada. You know, oh, they're going to fly you to England to rehearse at Shepperton, you know, where they made all the World War II movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm in the band now, right? <laughs> and, and, and and that's that's your big, typical British sense of humor, you know. Right. Oh, that's funny. Let the guy dangle for a week, right? You know, right. And then uh, and then they told me who uh, I was auditioning against, and the list was quite long. Uh, Eddie Jobson, who ended up in Asia, and yeah. uh, some other bands, UK. Um, Mark Stein. Uh, the guy, the, the guy from Vanilla, Vanilla Fudge. Fudge, yeah, yeah, and Brian Eno. No kidding. Yeah, and there's some other guys like really noted guys, you know. Yeah, well, I know Richie was a huge fan of Vanilla Fudge too, because that's who they patterned Deep Purple after in the beginning. Oh, oh, you, you, you put on a Vanilla Fudge record, you put on a Deep Purple record, you can't tell the difference. Exactly. They sound exactly. It's it's the same format. You got a good organ player, a good guy playing a hammer. And and a good and a good band with a good with a great bass player, Tim uh, Tim, forget the bass player in in uh, Mill Fudge, and he, Tim Bogart, Tim Bogart and he yeah. had a band called Big Bogart and a piece with Carmen and a piece. Um, uh, but who I met later, I met Tim Bogart later. Actually, asked me to be in a band with him. I'm like, sorry, man, I'm playing with Blackmore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know you. I know you got to go, uh, but I did want to ask you. I you, do. I'm, I'm making my coffee to head out the door, and, I, and I'm having a ball. To, oh, me you know? too. Uh, you mentioned Kim Mitchell when you were playing with Max Webster. Is that the Kim Mitchell that yeah. did, might as well go for a soda? Yeah, that guy. Oh wow. Okay. Well, this world's getting smaller and smaller. Oh yeah, and uh, and his band Max Webster uh, was loved Canada wide. Uh, the reason why I, j- I jumped at the chance was like. This is the best Canadian band at the time. They're like the best band. So if you see the Barry show, you will understand. I'm going to find it. I, I know. I know you will. You're a musician. You will immediately <laughs> get it. I'm sure you, I you will. You will get it. Oh, because it's it, it's incredibly complex. Like like a lot of guys can't play that. You, right. You'll see what I mean when you see it. Well, it takes a certain focus and a certain amount of talent to be able to do that kind well, of thing. Well, and you know, and study. And study, like you gotta know, you know, like you, you, there's books for this shit. You got, you know, learn how to read music, you know. 
it, it's going to help. <laughs> Trust me. I've got to let you go, Scott. You want to call me tomorrow? I'm so glad we got to talk. Um, I've got another session I'm doing tomorrow, but I'll text you and we'll find a time to continue the uh, the 60 part interview with David Stone. <laughs> well, if you don't mind, I, I'm I'm totally up for it, man. And uh, good luck. Sounds I got to let you go. Have a great night, my friend. We'll talk again soon. this guy not just a blast or what? I mean, I'm having so much fun talking to him and hearing these stories and finding out all these details. It's it's just been a joy, an absolute joy. Uh, This is an interview, like I said, I never thought I'd get. So I'm I'm very happy that I got it and I couldn't be happier about, uh, you know, how these conversations are going. So tune in next week. I will have my review of the album Water Dog by Arapaxis and hopefully some more to come and my interview with Michelle as well. So you guys have a great week. We'll see you next week on the Haskin Cast podcast. Cheers. Thank you.